0: In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect and glorious intercessor at thy right hand, we ask for your mercy, blessing, empowerment, guidance, direction on this second assembly that will please thee well in all things, that everything that is said will be according to the due order and rightly dividing the word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's pretend that we're still in the first service and jump back and get a little more clarification about some of the things that I taught you. Here's what I want to do. We have a two-step approach to understanding a Bible verse or a Bible passage. What the passage does not mean, what the passage does mean. I may have put more emphasis on what it does not mean and not enough on what it does mean by showing you the rules of the Old Testament for capital trials. So I'm going to do that now. First. Jesus said, he that is without sin among you. He wasn't addressing his audience. He was addressing the men that had just addressed him, the conspirators to stone the woman among you. They're the only ones that left. They were the ones convicted in their consciences. They were the ones that could stone. They were the witnesses to the crime. But but it's limited by the words among you in John chapter 8 and verse 7. Then... He that is without sin is not general sinfulness, and I taught you that. There is no man without sin in general. They knew it as well as we know it. If you make it sin in general, there can never be any judgment by any man. This is not a discussion of original sin, total depravity, or any related subject. The context requires us to think sin in a matter of accusing another for death penalty. Moses' law carefully governed accusers and judgments for such punishment. If you loosen this contextual chain, you will start down a path without truth and no end to it. The woman they had brought was not the result of a coincidental discovery. It was a trap to catch Jesus. They had her without her adulterer as a pawn facing capital punishment, and Jesus enforced the law of Moses by turning it back on them. He that is without sin, it's not general sin. He that is without sin is not sexual sin. There is no man without any sexual sins. They knew it as well as we know it. If you make it sexual sins here, there cannot be any judgment by any man or woman. This is not about sexual sin, actual or fantasy, divorce and remarriage, etc. It's about the law of Moses and legal prosecution and a legal process for a capital trial. Capital trial means capital punishment is at stake, right. execution of a person. The context requires us to think sin in a matter of accusing another for death. And if you loosen this contextual chain, you're in trouble. The abuse of these words is legion. You should know that. It is our wisdom to reclaim these words for truth. The words, he that is without sin among you. Jesus did not institute a whole new moral law, allowing adulteresses liberty. Jesus did not change judging others, even to death, when the sin justified it. Jesus did not put a guilt trip on those that must judge others, though all are sinners. Jesus did not restrain or restrict judgment of offenders by imperfect judges. That isn't the issue. It when what he did. There's no follow-up to that. The follow-up was getting rid of false accusers and getting him off the horns of what they thought was a dilemma he couldn't free himself from. Once you start down this foolish path by interpreting this passage any other way, Parents could not even judge children. Okay, that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? They could not or would not keep what Moses and the law had commanded. They said Moses and the law commanded. Jesus turned it back on them because they knew the law better than you know the law. So when you hear the words, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone at her, they understood who was to cast the first stone and of what kind of character were they to be and what kind of a relationship were they to have toward The victim and toward each other as witnesses. And that's what we need to look at so that I can show you these rules that they knew. They were the scribes. They were the scribes. They were the ones that dictated the terms how trials were to take place. They could not or would not keep what Moses and the law had commanded, the very words they had used against Jesus. Now, Moses and the law commanded us that we should stone her, that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? Well, Jesus, what did Jesus say? He said, well, where's the first righteous witness to be the executioner? Okay, let's look at it. Capital punishment, serious as it was and is, had clear rules to be followed. Leviticus 20 and verse 10. Leviticus 20 and verse 10. I am sorry about the first service, not being as careful with some of these verses as I am going to be right now. It's not going to take long. I'm going to read these verses to you and show you the rules that the scribes knew that they instantly became guilty of when Jesus turned it back on them, knowing that if he went one sentence more, he would start down a list of their violations of Moses' law. You say, is there any other example of him doing this to them and them leaving before? Yes, I gave it to you twice. Matthew 22, verse 46, they durst ask him no more questions. (laughs) Leviticus 20 and verse 10. The man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Moses required both parties to adultery to be killed, not just one. This is one of the references. Let's get the other one. Deuteronomy 22, 22. What were they in violation of doing? He that is without sin. They were sinning by bringing just the woman. Sinning in what way? Breaking God's law, but it's really the legal process of a capital trial. He had scribes standing in front of him. He was not addressing his audience. This is not part of a wide sermon to to 10,000 people standing in the temple. He is addressing the men that were pushing him and pushing him to answer them. And so he finally raised himself up and said, He that is without sin among you, among you conspirators and accusers of this woman, the men that are witnesses because you caught her in the very act, whoever of you is truly righteous in this legal process, grab the first stone and get to it. Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22. We're covering the rule right now that Moses required both parties to adultery to be killed, not just one of them. 22, 22. If a man be found lying with a woman, married to a husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. They didn't care about putting away evil from Israel. They just wanted to trap Jesus. This is one of the sins that they were guilty of by not bringing the man. If they caught her in the very act, then they knew who the man was. If the man had been a scumbag that was booked into a room at the Hotel 6 in Jerusalem, they would have brought him. But I don't want to speculate. The man could have been one of them. But I'm not going to speculate. Just forget that, jury. I just want you to think, why wasn't the man there? Right. That's rule one. Rule two, witnesses had to be fully honest or suffer the same judgment. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, had to be fully honest or suffer the same judgment. I'm going to start reading at verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth, even if he's guilty. One witness doesn't do it. So we're going to need several of you to stand up here and follow the first one that throws the first stone. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. The Lord's going to refer to this in John 8, 13 through 20. But that wasn't my point. Verse 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, they don't have the man. They only have a partial case. Then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges which shall be in those days, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother... Then shall ye do unto him, as he had thought to have done unto his brother, so shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear, and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Verse 19 is key. Then shall ye do unto him, as he had thought to have done unto his brother, The fact that the woman they were saying was guilty showed a conspiratorial false aspect to this trial because they didn't bring the man. So rule one was you had to have both the adulterer and the adulteress. Rule two is witnesses had to be fully honest in the trial or suffer the same judgment. Exodus 23. Witnesses had to be very righteous. Exodus 23, in the matter at hand. When you didn't bring a woman, when you didn't bring the man, and you're trying to charge the woman, there's obviously a slant and a bias to the trial. You are trying to do something other than execute righteousness in Israel. Verse 1 of Exodus 23, Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Look at this terminology. Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thine hand with the wicked, that's a conspiracy, to be an unrighteous witness. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to wrest judgment. That is to corrupt the the normal legal process of a capital trial where you needed both the adulterer and the adulteress. Verse 7, keep thee far from a false matter. And the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. And capital punishment for adultery required both parties. Witnesses accusing the woman caught in the act were liars about the man. They were resting judgment. They had put their hands together and agreed that we're going to protect whoever the man was. We're going to let him off the hook. We're going to use this woman in front of his audience to get the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses required the witnesses to throw the first stones. Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. These are the things that the scribes knew intuitively. They could have, not intuitively, from their studies and from their memories, they could have quoted you these verses. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. How do you put evil away from among you legally? By those two verses, you make the witnesses throw the first stones, because it's easy to wag the tongue, but it's harder to pick up the stones. These unrighteous witnesses, knowing that they were unrighteous, knowing they had put their hands together with each other to try to catch the Lord Jesus Christ, one of them could have seduced the woman very well. They knew that it was a corrupt trial. The Lord's bringing, They knew all this, that the Lord threw on them with the words, he that is without sin. Which of you scribes and Pharisees, you sit in Moses' seat, you have the right to stone her, you have the responsibility to stone her, You that have have no sins in this trial, pick the stone up and get going. 13, Deuteronomy 13, they knew all these verses. And when you tie them all together, what was their sin? It was the legal sin of not following Moses' prescribed course for stoning a person guilty of adultery. They didn't have the man. They had conspired together to just use her as a pawn against the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not righteous. They were following a multitude to do evil. There's these sins that they had, they were not righteous witnesses. Did you see the words? You have to be a righteous witness. You have to have pure motives to condemn someone to death because the Lord guards capital punishment from it being abused and people just being executed by the civil arm or the sword of the government whenever anybody wants to raise a false charge. Deuteronomy thirteen six: if thy brother, the son of thy mother or thy son or thy daughter or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from the one end of the earth, even unto the other end of the earth. We don't care what false god it is. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him. They're concealing the man, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death and afterwards the hand of all the people and thou shalt stone him with stones that he die because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. This is for idolatry, but the point is it's a capital trial for the life of the guilty party. And it was to be prosecuted this particular way, no mercy to be shown, shall surely kill him. And there was a person missing from this trial that we have in John chapter eight. The Jews knew this rule, and the Jews knew this rule very well. When Stephen was stoned, Saul of Tarsus kept coats. He kept the coats of whom? The witnesses. the witnesses had to pick up the first stones and do it, and they were doing it against Saul of Tarsus there in Acts chapter 7. Though the woman was caught in the act, these accusers sinned about three or more different ways, depending on how much you want to expand the verses I've just read to you. They didn't bring the man. They weren't planning on throwing the first stone. They were unrighteous witnesses, and they had conspired together, we're getting ourselves up above three, They had conspired themselves against this woman and with each other for the man that was absent or present, not known, against Jesus Christ. He that is without sin among you intends only legal sin by them for execution. If we take any other position, it teaches far more than it is allowed to teach and we end up in a serious problem. If we take it this way, which was perfectly understood, these were the scribes he was addressing. The issue at stake was to stone someone. A capital trial needed certain conditions met. Jesus is asking Are all the conditions met? And are you witnesses righteous? Are there several of you? Where is the man? You do the stoning, you take on Rome. This is clearly the context, and we go with context above any other factors. If any other interpretation is made, then any and all judgment is weakened. If any other interpretation is made, Jesus went much farther than he needed to go. He went as, exactly as far as he needed to, and he ended the whole thing right there. This is the same way. This is exactly how we understand the words, neither do I condemn thee. Jesus continued to condemn adultery. He condemned adultery in Matthew chapter 5 so specifically that he said, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. He took it and applied it to the hearts and thoughts and fantasies of men. He then said in the same passage, Matthew chapter 5, and he said again in Matthew chapter 19, that if you use the divorce courts to get yourself a different spouse, you're guilty of adultery also. And so he did condemn adultery. When he said, neither do I condemn thee, he was not in a position to condemn Just like I quoted to you and read to you from Luke 12, 13 and 14. Man, who made me a judge over you? I don't have a position of authority to do these kind of things. Neither do I condemn thee. You don't have any witnesses here of your adultery? No accusers here of your adultery? No one here to condemn you? I don't condemn you either. I don't have the office. I don't have the grounds. There is no basis for a case. You're dismissed. Go and sin no more. And with that... He got a little bit in there that she had sinned, and she shouldn't sin any further. That's it. There's an extensive outline with all the verses and explanations, I hope, that will be of value to you. I was asked a few minutes ago, are you the only one that believes this? Absolutely not. What do you think commentators understood about this passage 200, 300, 400, and 500 years ago, before they had sung all the songs about Jesus loving the whole world and all that junk, before they had heard the effeminate, pacifist, anti capital punishment arguments from John 8, they perfectly understood it. Just as I just explained it to you. We're not alone. Our fathers in the faith believed it. We live in the perilous times of the last days where things are being corrupted by a false doctrine of God, Jesus, and forgiveness. Forgiveness is is not because God looks at us, feels sorry for us, and decides to blow off the transgression. God forgives us because he condemned and punished his son in our place. He didn't forgive the woman. Why do you think he forgave the woman? He didn't deal with forgiveness with the woman. He said, neither do I condemn thee. What condemnation was under consideration by the previous verse? Woman, where are these thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee to death by Moses' legal system? Neither do I condemn thee. I don't have the office to do it. I don't have the witnesses to do it. But he did condemn her. Go and sin no more. I love your appetite for the word of God. I love teaching you. You have heard me say, If you ever want to pray for your pastor, that he'll rightly divide the word of truth. Nothing else matters to me. If my health declines and I rightly divide the word of truth, I'll take it in a second. If anything were to happen, but I rightly divide the word of truth, I'll be thankful. To get in the pulpit and to preach John 8 differently than anyone else preaches it, or most preach it today, is it scary? about that much. Do you want to see the big fear? Is misdividing the word of truth of Almighty God who gave me these words. And so I'll take that little bit of being different at times and startling you by preaching the context because I've got over here fear about this big and that is I'm going to have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and I'd like to hear well done instead of poorly done. I poorly did it in the first sermon by not covering these verses. But if you will take these verses and line them up and read them, you'll know that when Jesus said he, among you he's limiting his words to the conspirators, he that is among you without sin who's got the righteous qualifications of an executioner from Exodus 23 and these other passages let them get started and then he stooped down and let them think about it instead of continuing the debate, it's just beautiful yes. and, I, and I, I want you to see it and it's consistent with the entire word of God. We haven't undermined anyone's authority. We haven't put a nagging doubt in your mind when you try to be a good husband or a good father or a good master or a good pastor or a good magistrate. Did Jesus still hate adultery? Try him on different passages. That wasn't the issue here. The issue was not adultery. The issue was a capital trial and capital punishment. And they didn't have the grounds for it. And they all walked away because they knew that law better than we know it. Stop me. We're going to do this the rest of the day. (laughs) (laughs) Heavenly Father, I thank Thee, Lord of heaven and earth for any truth that we see. Show us your truth and we will preach it, teach it, practice it, defend it, promote it, and love it. Uh Heavenly Father, I thank thee that once upon a time, I knew a man out of Christ who, when his father tried to hand him the scriptures, he said, I have no need of that. I thank thee for thy scriptures and I love them and I love your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to vindicate him from overthrowing the law of God, overthrowing human authority, overthrowing judgment, overthrowing capital punishment. All he did was confirm the law of Moses that they were trying to use against him. Bless this congregation in their individual hearts, in their homes, in their authority spheres, even as mothers over children, that they do not have to feel guilty about casting the first stripe but that they can go ahead and do what they ought to do because it's executing your justice, your way, according to your word. But Lord, let us always do it according to your word, your way, and let us do it right. Forgive us our sins. Everything we do is tainted with sinfulness. But we thank thee for thy perfect law, and it's able to make us perfect by converting our foolish souls. I love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Do some of the commentators get carried away and go off into compassion and stuff? Yes. And I go, I'm in my office, no, no, don't do that. And then they'll say something, yes. All that matters is what the Lord said.